15. The amount should vary with the physical condition and the other demands made upon the energy. 1. In health should exercise sufficiently to keep the muscles firm to the touch and the body in a vigorous condition. Of the many forms of exercise from which one may choose, the question is again one of individual adaptability and convenience. While the different forms of exercise vary in their effects and may be made to serve different purposes, the consideration of these is beyond the scope of an elementary text. As a rule one will not go far wrong by following his inclinations, observing of course the conditions under which exercise is taken to the best advantage. General rules for healthful exercise. That exercise may secure the best results from the standpoint of health. A number of conditions should be observed. 1. It should not be excessive or carried to the point of exhaustion. Severe physical exercise is destructive to both muscular and nervous tissues. 2. It should, if possible, be of an interesting nature and taken in the open air. 3. It should be counteractive, that island calling into play those parts of the body that have not been used during the regular work. 88-4. It should be directed toward the weak rather than toward the strong parts of the body. 5. When one is already tired from study, or other work, it should be taken with moderation or omitted for the time being. For exercise of the heart muscle and the muscular coat of the blood vessel see pages 55 and 57. Massage, in lieu of exercise taken in the usual way. Similar effects are sometimes obtained by a systematic rubbing, pressing, stroking, or kneading of the skin and the muscles by one trained in the art. This process, known as massage, may be gentle or vigorous and is subject to a variety of modifications. Massage is applied when one is unable to take exercise, on account of disease or accident, and also in the treatment of certain bodily disorders, a weak ankle, wrist or other part of the body, or even a bruise, may be greatly benefited by massage. The flow of blood and lymph is stimulated, causing new materials to be passed to the affected parts and waste materials to be removed. Massage, however, should never be applied to a boil, or other infected sore. The effect in this case would be to spread the infection and increase the trouble. Summary. Motion is provided for in the body mainly through the muscle cells. These are grouped into a working parts called muscles, which in turn are attached to the movable parts of the body. The striated muscles, as a rule, are attached to the mechanical devices found in the skeleton, and bring about the voluntary, movements. The non-striated muscles surround the parts on which they act, and produce involuntary movements. Both, however, are under the control of the nervous system, to bring about the opposing movements of the body. The striated muscles are arranged in pairs, and to increase their motion. The bones are used as levers. Physical exercise is necessary both for the development of the muscles and for the health and vigor of the entire body. Exercises. 1. Compare the striated and non-striated muscles with reference to structure, location, and method of work. 2. In what respects is the muscular tissue of the heart like the striated, and in what respects like the non-striated, muscular tissue? 3. If muscles could push as well as pull, would so many be needed in the body? Why? 4. Locate muscles that work to some extent against elasticity and gravity. 5. Locate 5 muscles that act as flexors, 5 that act as extensors, 2 that act as adductors, and 2 as abductors. Locate sphincter and radiating muscles. 6. By what means does the nervous system control the muscles? 7. Give proofs of the change of potential into kinetic energy during muscular contraction. 8. Define the essential properties of muscular tissue and state the purpose served by each. 9. Describe a lever, 
For what general purpose are levers used in the body? What other purpose do they serve outside of the body? 10. Why are levers of the second class not adapted to the work of the body? 11. Name the class of lever used in bending the elbow, in straightening the elbow, in raising the knee, in elevating the toes, and in biting. Why is one able to bite harder with the back teeth than with the front ones when the same muscles are used in both cases? 12. Measure the distance from the middle of the palm of the hand to the center of the elbow joint. Find the attachment of the tendon of the biceps muscle to the radius and measure its distance to the center of the elbow joint. From these distances calculate the force with which the biceps contracts in order to support a weight of 10 pounds on the palm of the hand. 13. How does exercise benefit the health? How does a short walk clear the brain and enable one to study to better advantage? 14. When exercise is taken for its effects upon the health, what conditions should be observed? Practical work The reddish muscle found in a piece of beef is a good example of striated muscle. The clear ring surrounding the intestine of a cat shown by cross-section and the outer portion of the preparation from the cow's stomach, sold at the butcher shop under the name of tripe, are good examples of non-striated muscular tissue. The heart of any animal, of course, shows the heart muscle. To show the structure of striated muscle, boil a tough piece of beef, as a cut from the neck, until the connective tissue has thoroughly softened. Then with some blunt instrument, separate the main piece into its fiber bundles and these in turn into their smallest divisions. The smallest divisions obtainable are the muscle cells or fibers. To show striated fibers, place a small muscle from the leg of a frog in a 50% solution of alcohol and leave it there for half a day or longer. Then cover with water on a glass slide, and with a couple of fine needles tease out the small muscle threads. Protect with a cover glass and examine with a microscope first with a low and then with a high power, the striations, sarcolemma, and sometimes the nuclei and nerve plates, may be distinguished in such a preparation, to show non-striated cells, place a clean section of the small intestine of a cat in a mixture of one part of nitric acid and four parts of water and leave for four or five hours, thoroughly wash out the acid with water and separate the muscular layer from the mucous membrane, cover a small portion of the muscle with water on a glass slide and tease out, with needles, until it is as finely divided as possible, examine with a microscope, first with a low and then with a high power, the cells appear as very fine, spindle-shaped bodies, to illustrate muscular stimulus and contraction, separate the muscles at the back of the thigh of a frog which has just been killed and draw the large sciatic nerve to the surface, cut this as high up as possible and, with a sharp knife and a small pair of scissors, dissect it out to the knee. Now cut out entirely the large muscle of the calf of the leg the gastrocnemius, but leave attached to it the nerve, the lower tendon, and the bones of the knee. Mount on an upright support, as shown in figure 120, and fasten the tendon to a lever below by a thread or small wire hook, figure 120 figure 120 apparatus for demonstrating properties of muscles. 1. Lay the nerve over the ends of the wires from a small battery which are attached to the support at and arrange a second break in the circuit at, at this place the battery circuit is made and broken either by a telegraph key or by simply touching and separating the wires, note that the muscle gives a single contraction, or twitch, both when the current is made and when it is broken, Two. remove the current and pinch the end of the nerve, noting the result, with very fine wires, connect the battery directly to the ends of the muscle, stimulate by making and breaking the current as before, in this experiment the muscle cells are stimulated by the direct action of the current and not by the current acting on the nerve. 3. 
with the wires attached to either the muscle or the nerve, may can break the current in rapid succession. This causes the muscle to enter into a second contraction before it has relaxed from the first, and if the shocks follow in rapid succession, to continue in the contracted state, this condition, which represents the method of contraction of the muscles in the body, is called tetanus. Note. In these experiments a twitching of the muscle is frequently observed when no stimulus is being applied. This is due to the drying out of the nerve and is prevented by keeping it wet with a physiological salt solution. See footnote. Page 38. To show the action of levers. With a light but stiff wooden bar. A spring balance. And a wedge-shaped fulcrum. Show. 1. The position of the weight. The fulcrum. And the power in the different classes of levers. And also the weight arm and the power arm in each case. 2. The direction moved by the power and the weight respectively in the use of the different classes of levers. 3. That when the power arm and weight arm are equal, the power equals the weight and moves through the same distance. 4. That when the power arm is longer than the weight arm, the weight is greater, but moves through a shorter distance than the power. 5. That when the weight arm is longer than the power arm, the power is greater and moves through a shorter distance than the weight. To show the loss of power in the use of the body levers, construct a frame similar to, but larger than, that shown in figure 120 about 12 inches high, and hang a small spring balance 250 grams capacity at the place where the muscle is attached. Fasten the end of a lever to the upright piece, at a point on a level with the end of the balance hook. The nail or screw used for this purpose must pass loosely through the lever, and serve as a pivot upon which it can turn. The lever should consist of a light piece of wood, and should have a length at least three times as great as the distance from the hook to the turning point. Connect the balance hook with the lever by a thread or string, and then hang upon it a small body of known weight. Note the amount of force exerted at the balance in order to support the weight at different places on the lever. At what point is the force just equal to the weight? Where is it twice as great? Where three times? Show that the force required to support the weight increases proportionally as the weight arm and as the distance through which the weight may be moved by the lever. Apply to the action of the biceps muscle in lifting weights on the forearm. A study of the action of the biceps muscle. Place the fingers upon the tendon of the biceps where it connects with the radius of the forearm. With the forearm resting upon the table. Note that the tendon is somewhat loose and flaccid. But that with the slightest effort to raise the forearm it quickly tightens. Now transfer the fingers to the body of the muscle. And sweep the forearm through two or three complete movements. Noting the changes in the length and thickness of the muscle. Lay the forearm again on the table. Back of hand down and place a heavy weight of flat iron or a hammer upon the hand. Note the effort required to raise the weight, and then shift it along the arm. Observe that the nearer it approaches the elbow the lighter it seems. Account for the difference in the effort required to raise the weight at different places. Does the effort vary as the distance from the tendon? Chapter XVI The skin protective coverings are found at all the exposed surfaces of the body. These vary considerably at different places each being adapted to the conditions under which it serves. The most important ones are the skin, which covers the entire external surface of the body, the mucous membrane, which lines all the cavities that communicate by openings with the external surface, and the serous membrane, which, including the synovial membranes, lines all the closed cavities of the body. In addition to the protection which it affords, the skin is one of the means by which the body is brought into proper relations with its surroundings. It is because of this function that we take up the study of the skin at this time. The skin is one of the most complex structures of the body, and serves several distinct purposes. 
it is estimated to have an area of from 14 to 16 square feet, and to have a thickness which varies from less than one-eighth to more than one-fourth of an inch. It is thickest on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. The places where it is most subject to wear, it is made up of two distinct layers an outer layer called the epidermis, or cuticle, and an inner layer called the dermis, or cutis vera figure 121. The dermis, this is the thicker and heavier of the two layers, and is made up chiefly of connective tissue. The network of tough fibers which this tissue supplies, forms the essential body of the dermis and gives to it its power of resistance. It is on account of the connective tissue that the skins of animals can be converted into a leather by tanning. A variety of structures, including blood and lymph vessels, oil and perspiratory glands, hair follicles, and nerves, are found embedded in the connective tissue figure 122. These aid in different ways in the work of the skin. Figure 121 Figure 121 Section of Skin Magnified A. B. Epidermis B. Pigment Layer C. Papillae D. Dermis E. Fatty Tissue F. G. H. Sweat Gland and Duct I. K. Hair and Follicle L. Oil Gland On the outer surface of the dermis are numerous elevations, called papillae. These average about 1 one-hundredth of an inch in height, and 1 two-hundred-and-fiftieth of an inch in diameter. They are most numerous on the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet, and the undersurfaces of the fingers and toes. At these places they are larger than in other parts of the body, and are closely grouped, forming the parallel curved ridges which cover the surfaces. Each pupilla contains a loop of capillaries and a small nerve, and many of them are crowned with Dutch corpuscles. Page 342. Figure 122 Figure 122 Diagram of section of skin showing its different structures. The epidermis is much thinner than the dermis. It is made up of several layers of cells which are flat and scale-like at the surface, but are rounded in form where the epidermis joins the dermis. The epidermis has the appearance of being molded onto the dermis, filling up the depressions between the papillae and having corresponding irregularities. Figure 121. No blood vessels are found in the epidermis, its nourishment being derived from the lymph which reaches it from the dermis. Only the part next to the dermis is made up of living cells. These are active, however, in the formation of new cells, which take the place of those that are worn off at the surface. Some of the cells belonging to the inner layer of epidermis contain pigment granules, which give the skin its color figure 121. The epidermis contains no nerves and is therefore non-sensitive. The hair and the nails are important modifications of the epidermis. A hair is a slender cylinder, formed by the union of epidermal cells which grows from a kind of pit in the dermis, called the hair follicle. The oval and somewhat enlarged part of the hair within the follicle is called the root, or bulb, and the uniform cylinder beyond the follicle is called the shaft. Connected with the sides of the follicles are the oil, or sebaceous, glands figures 121 and 122. These secrete an oily liquid which keeps the hair and cuticle soft and pliable. Attached to the inner ends of the follicles are small, involuntary muscles whose contractions cause the roughened condition of the skin that occurs on exposure to cold. A nail is a tough and rather horny plate of epidermal tissue which grows from a depression in the dermis, called the matrix. The back part of the nail is known as the root, the middle convex portion as the body, and the front margin as the free edge figure 123. Material for the growth of the nail is derived from the matrix, which is lined with active epidermal cells and is richly supplied with blood vessels. Cells added to the root cause the nail to grow in length forward and cells added to the undersurface cause it to grow in thickness. 
the cuticle adheres to the nail around its entire circumference so that the covering over the dermis is complete. Figure 123 Figure 123 Section of end of finger showing nail in position. Functions of the skin. The chief function of the skin is that of protection. It is able to protect the body on account of the tough connective tissue in the dermis, the non-sensitive cells of the epidermis, and also by the touch corpuscles and their connecting nerve fibers. This protection is of at least three kinds, as follows, 1. From mechanical injuries such as might result from contact with hard, rough, or sharp objects. The main quality needed for resisting mechanical injuries is toughness, and this is supplied both by the epidermis and by the connective tissue of the dermis. Two from chemical injuries caused by contact with various chemical agents, as acids, alkalis, and the oxygen of the air, the epidermis, being of such a nature as to resist to a considerable extent the action of chemical agents, affords protection from these substances. 89.3. From disease germs which are everywhere present, the epidermis is the main protective agent against attacks of germs, but should the epidermis be broken, They meet with further resistance from the fluids of the dermis and the white corpuscles of the blood. 4. From an excessive evaporation of liquid from the surface of the body. In the performance of this function, the skin is an important means of keeping the tissues soft and the blood and lymph from becoming too concentrated. Other functions of the skin. Through the perspiratory glands the skin is an organ of excretion. While the secretion from a single gland is small. The waste that leaves the body through all of the perspiratory glands is considerable 90 page 206. By means of the nerves terminating in the touch corpuscles, the skin serves as the organ of touch, or feeling chapter XX. To a slight extent also the skin may absorb liquid substances, these being taken up by the blood and lymph vessels, and perform a respiratory function, throwing off carbon dioxide. But the most important function of the skin, in addition to protection, is that of serving as an organ of adaptation, forming, as it does, the boundary between the body and its physical environment. The skin is perhaps the most important agent through which the body is adapted to its immediate surroundings. Evidence of this is found in the great variety of influences which are able to affect the body through their action upon the nerves in the skin, and in the changes which the epidermis undergoes on exposure. The latter function is especially marked in the lower animals, the coverings of epidermal tissue hair scales, feathers, etc. adapting each species to the physical conditions under which it lives. In man the most striking example of adaptation through the skin is seen in the variations in the quantity of blood circulating through it, corresponding to the changes in the temperature outside of the body. These variations are of great importance, having to do with the maintenance of the normal temperature. It is necessary to the continuance of life that the temperature of the body be kept at a nearly uniform degree called the normal temperature, which is about 98.6 degrees F. The maintenance of the normal temperature depends mainly upon four conditions, the chemical changes at the cells, the circulation of the blood, the nervous system, and the skin. The chemical changes produce the heat, the blood in its circulation distributes the heat over the body, and the nervous system controls the heat producing and distributing processes. Page 320. The skin is the chief means by which the body gets rid of an excess of heat and, by so doing, avoids overheating. 91 How the skin cools the body. The skin is a means of ridding the body of an excess of heat in at least two ways. 1. By the conduction and radiation of heat from its surface as from a stove. This goes on all the time, but varies with the amount of heat brought to the surface by the blood. 2. By the evaporation of the perspiration. 
it is a well-established and easily demonstrated principle that liquids in evaporating use of heat, see practical work. It is also a matter of everyday experience that the perspiration has a cooling effect upon the body and that its flow increases with the amount of heat to be gotten rid of. The quantity of perspiration secreted, and of heat disposed of through its evaporation, also varies with the amount of blood circulating through the skin. Temperature regulation by the skin. Variations in the quantity of blood circulating through the skin enable this organ to throw off just the right amount of heat for keeping the body at the normal temperature. If it is necessary for the body to rid itself of an excess of heat, the quantity of blood circulating in the skin is increased. This brings the blood near the surface, where more heat can be radiated and where it may cause an increase in the perspiration. On the other hand, if the body is in danger of losing too much heat, the circulation diminishes in the skin and increases in the internal organs. This stops the rapid loss of heat from the surface. The skin in this work is of course made to cooperate with other parts of the body. That it is not the only organ concerned in regulating the escape of heat is seen in the results that follow sensations either of chilliness or of heat at the surface. Effects of heat and cold sensations. Sensations. Or feelings. Of heat and cold are made possible through the nerves which connect the brain with the temperature corpuscles. Found in the skin page 343, as the warm blood recedes from the skin, a sensation of cold is felt, but when the blood returns, there is again the feeling of warmth, the sensation of cold prompts one to seek a warmer place, or to put on more clothing, while the sensation of heat, if it be oppressive, leads to activities of an opposite kind, prompted in this way by the sensations from the skin, one voluntarily supplies the external conditions, such as clothing and heat that affect the body temperature, alcohol and the regulation of temperature, alcohol, through its effect upon the nervous system, interferes seriously with the regulation of the body temperature, by dilating the capillaries, it increases the circulation in the skin and leads to an undue loss of heat, at the same time the excessive blood in the skin causes a feeling of warmth which has led to the erroneous belief that alcohol is a heat producer, if taken on a cold day. It deceives one about his true condition and leads to a wasting of heat when it should be carefully economized. Not only is alcohol of no value in maintaining the body temperature, but if taken during severe exposure to cold, it becomes a menace to life itself. Arctic explorers and others exposed to severe cold have found that they withstand cold far better when no alcohol at all is used. 92 Hygiene of the skin Much of the hygiene of the skin is included in the problems of keeping it warm and clean. It is kept warm by clothing, bathing is the method of keeping it clean. Clothing should be warm and loose-fitting. Woolen fabrics are to be preferred in winter to cotton because, being poorer conductors of heat, they afford better protection from the cold, but wool fails to absorb the perspiration rapidly from the skin and to pass it to the outside where it is evaporated. This, together with its tendency to irritate, makes woolen clothing somewhat objectionable for wearing next to the skin. This objection, however, is obviated by woolen underwear which is lined by a thin weaving of cotton, bathing, the solid material from the perspiration, which is left on the skin, together with the oil from the oil glands and the dirt from the outside, tends to close up the pores and develop offensive odors, keeping the skin clean island for these reasons, necessary from both a health and a social standpoint, while one should always keep clean, the frequency of the bath will depend upon the season, the occupation of the individual, and the nature and amount of the perspiration, as to the kind of bath to be taken and the precautions to be observed, no specific rules can be laid down, 
these must be determined by the facilities at hand and by the health and natural vigor of the bather. Severe chilling of the body should be avoided, especially by those in delicate health. If a hot bath is taken, one should dash cold water over the body on finishing. One should then quickly dry and rub the body with a coarse towel. The dash of cold water closes the pores of the skin and lessens the liability of taking cold. The tonic bath. The cold bath has been found to have a beneficial effect upon the general health beyond its effect upon the skin. When taken with care as to the length of time and the degree of cold, decided tonic effects are observed on the circulation and on the nervous system. The rapid changes of temperature vigorously exercise the non-striated muscles of the blood vessels page 57 and the nerves controlling them. The irritability of the nervous system in general is also lessened. For this reason the cold bath is one of the best means of keeping both mind and body in good condition during the warm months. Sponging off the body with cold or tepid water before retiring is also an excellent aid in securing sound sleep during the hot summer nights. Danger from the cold bath arises through the shock to the nervous system and the loss of heat from the body. It is avoided by using water whose temperature is not too low and by limiting the time spent in the bath. A brisk rubbing with a coarse towel should always follow the cold bath. People past middle age are, as a rule, not benefited by the cold bath, and those in delicate health, especially if inclined toward rheumatism, are likely to be affected injuriously by it. Care of the complexion. A good complexion is a natural accompaniment of good health and depends primarily upon two conditions a clear skin and an active circulation of the blood through it. Clearness of the skin depends largely upon the elimination of waste material from the body, and where the solid wastes are not effectively removed through the natural channels the liver, kidneys, and bowels, blotches, sallowness of the skin, and skin eruptions are likely to result in seeking to clear the complexion. Attention must be given to all those agencies that favor the elimination of waste, and especially should there be a free and thorough evacuation of the bowels each day. The general health should also be looked after, attention being given to exercise, fresh air, proper food, 93 sufficient sleep, etc. Bathing is the chief means employed for increasing the circulation in the skin. Although exercise which is sufficiently vigorous to cause one to perspire freely is a valuable aid. A daily bath of warm or hot water, finished off with a dash of cold, followed by a thorough rubbing of the entire surface, and this by a kneading of the skin with the thumbs and fingers, will in most cases bring about the desired results. A little olive oil, thoroughly worked into the skin during the kneading process, is beneficial where one lacks flesh or where the skin is dry and thin. The olive oil is also beneficial where the baths are exhausting or render one susceptible to cold. In rubbing and kneading, the skin should not be bruised or irritated. The much advertised complexion beautifiers which are applied directly to the face frequently have the effect of clogging the pores and of causing eruptions of the skin. On the other hand, certain authorities state that the cold cream preparations may be of advantage in giving the skin a desired softness, and that when judiciously used the face being cleansed after each application they do no harm. Of the different kinds of face powder those prepared from rice are considered the least injurious. Treatment of skin wounds. Skin wounds which may not be serious in themselves frequently become so through getting infected with germs. Blood poisoning often results from such infections. One of the worst forms being tetanus, or lockjaw. A wound should be kept clean, and if it shows signs of infection, it should be washed with some antiseptic solution, or, it may be cleansed with pure warm water and then covered with some antiseptic ointment, 94 of which there are a number on the market. 
a weak solution of carbolic acid 1 part acid to 25 parts of water makes an excellent antiseptic wash. It may be used not only for cleansing wounds, but also in counteracting the poisonous effects that follow the bites of insects. A wound resulting from the bite of an animal cat or dog, even though slight, should receive more serious attention, and as soon as possible after the occurrence, such wounds should be cauterized, and for this purpose pure carbolic acid and diluted with water may be used. A wooden toothpick is dipped into the acid and this is worked about in the wound. The acid is then washed out with warm water. A deep wound from a rusty nail or a thorn should be treated in the same manner and should be kept open not being allowed to heal at the surface first. If one has reason to believe he has been bitten by a mad dog, the wound should be cauterized as above, and a physician should be summoned at once. Deep wounds from explosives, or other causes, should also receive the attention of the physician. Many cases of lockjaw result every year from wounds inflicted by the toy pistols, firecrackers, etc. used in our 4th of July celebrations. These are due to the embedding in the skin or flesh of small solid particles on which are lockjaw germs. Wounds of this nature should, of course, receive the attention of the physician. Care of the nails. Relief from a blood blister under the nail is secured by boring a small hole through the nail with the sharp point of a sterilized penknife. Page 38. This simple bit of surgery not only relieves the pain, but is frequently the only means of saving the nail. Ingrown toe nails are relieved by scraping a broad strip in the middle of the nail until very thin. This relieves the pressure, preventing the sides of the nail from being forced into the toe. While the finger nails should be trimmed in a curve, corresponding to the end of the finger, it is recommended that the toe nails be cut straight across figure 124, as this method diminishes the pressure from the shoe.